Hey everybody, welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host, Andrew Schiestel, joining the show today from Tunisia. And this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean basin. Today, Dr. Cyril Wallace joins the show for a conversation that's going to explore what scholars know about Crete during the Iron Age. Dr. Wallace is a senior research fellow at the Gerda Hankel Research Foundation. She has written numerous publications over her career, including authoring these two books as examples, Ancient Crete, which was published by Cambridge University Press, and Travelers in Time, which was published by Routledge. And Dr. Wallace joins the show today from the UK. Welcome to the show, Cyril. Thank you, Andrew. Nice to be here. Good to connect with you, Cyril. So when we're chatting about the Iron Age in this context, so in the context of the island of Crete, what period of time do you define the Iron Age to have been? Well, uh, we usually now define it as starting around 1200 BC after the collapse of the Mycenaean Late Bronze Age states and as finishing around 700 BC, that's the end of the what we call the geometric period in the pottery chronology. Okay. So to create enough background and context, for, the, for this conversation today, Sarah, can you share what Crete was like during the Iron Age? So the 13th century, you said 1200 to the to 700 B, BCE, so the 800, eight, uh, the 8th century rather. Can you, can you create enough background and context? And then we'll obviously work our way into the details in the conversation from there. Okay, well, in the in Crete, in the latest Bronze Age, right up to the end of the 13th century BC, we would have seen uh, an island which was closely linked to the rest of the Aegean in terms of its political and administrative structure. Uh, societies probably, although this is uh, controversial, uh, probably, almost probably, almost certainly still using linear B script and administering large territories, polities ruled by a kingly type ruler, uh, kingdoms uh, centered around Hanya in western Crete, Knossos in central Crete, coastal settlements, and very important, uh, shipping trade in commodities like olive oil and wool, which we know from slightly earlier periods in the linear B texts, um, and a very wealthy uh, part of the Aegean, trading and communicating regularly with other parts and communicating with the East Mediterranean. After 1200 BC, when over much of the East Mediterranean uh, state polities and international trade undergoes a huge shock and a huge change, even a crisis, Crete, it looks like a very different place with a consistent retreat from investment in coastal settlements and movements inland and to a more defensive perspective, um, not always to high altitude sites, but a movement of settlement, considerable movement and fragmentation of population to inland zones and a changed economy, uh, still in touch with the outside world, but um, a more diverse economy with settlements being much more focused on self-sufficiency and less focused on state level investment in 
trade. So at the end of the Bronze Age, you you believe there was a very notable change in civilization in society on the on the island around that that 1200 around that 1200 you've seen you've seen evidence for that uh, yes and it's not restricted to crete um, across the aegean and parts of the east mediterranean as well we get the destruction violent destruction and abandonment of uh, the centers of palatial states you know, cities if you like um, and we get a disturbance uh, referred to in some of the ancient texts in Egypt, the Near East, uh, where we have texts for this period, uh, we get references to problems, conflicts, invasions, and these things have been brought together by a number of scholars, not just myself, to interpret the period around 1200 as really um, one of considerable disruption um, and permanent change in many regions, and the Aegean is one of those regions where the changes we see are, are so disruptive uh, that, that the, the old system is never re-established, and we really get the beginning of a completely new period of history, which is why we tend now to put that boundary between Bronze and Iron Age at around 1200. But these disturbances may have started earlier, as early as the mid-13th century, and certainly by the later decades of the 13th century, things aren't going too well. And so we mustn't fix on this exact date of 1200, but we have to look at it as the end of the latest Bronze Age around that period. Okay. And therefore, the next period is, is the Iron Age. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And the disturbances that you've you spoke about in this region has come up several times by various scholars on the show in the in the past. Um, you mentioned. You mentioned uh, writing. I think you said that linear B was still being used. Can you can you share can you share more about what's known about the civilization's writing system and language in this period of time on the island? Well, as I mentioned before, Crete has a controversy about the exact chronology of the clay tablets on which the linear B script is written. Um, and found it in the island. So I'll, I'll, I'll just say that in, in the late Bronze Age, we have the linear B script, which is a syllabic script where signs represent syllables. This was deciphered in the 1950s and it is known to be Greek, an early form of Greek. I'm sure your listeners will be aware of that from listening to some of your other podcasts um, with other scholars. And um, so this is the, the administrative language and this is the by this period in the Aegean, and this is the way administration is done on clay tablets, which are inscribed when wet, and when they would have been dried and gradually crumbled away, um, we only have them preserved when they're burnt in fire destructions. And because we do have destructions of this period and slightly earlier periods as well, but a lot at this period, um, on the mainland um, of Greece, where the palatial polities are using this script on clay tablets, we have it well preserved through the latest part of the Bronze Age and we're able to learn a lot about the way these states organize their economy. And we see emphases on uh, craft uh, production um, to serve the state, craftsmen in the service of the state, producing things like bronze, armor, and weapons. We see the state intervening in agriculture and allocating rations to laborers of all different types within the agricultural sector, um, wool 
gatherers, uh, wool carders, weavers, um, and people uh, the, the state uh, controlling allocations of oxen for plowing and flock and, and, and controlling the sizes of uh, flocks of sheep. Uh, so we, we see uh, the state taking a very big role in how the economy is organized. At the same time, many aspects of the economy uh, are hidden from us uh, in the textual records because they're not considered to be important or they're not the main focus of the palatial administration. So for example, orchards, um, the cultivation of pulses and, and things like this are not well, very well documented in the when you retext, although we know from archaeological evidence uh, of a wide range of foodstuffs being consumed. So it's important not to rely totally, of course, on the texts to tell us about the economy. And archaeology gives us other insights. In the Iron Age, is it the is it the same is it the same script that was being used in the late Bronze Age on the island by the the group of people that are commonly known as the, the Mycenaeans? Well, the interesting thing is that in the Iron Age, and this is one of the amazing things in the Aegean, uh, the linear B script and any script disappears from the region until the 8th century BC, when we start to get Phoenician scripts coming in and eventually being adapted into the earliest Greek alphabet. We really have no uh, use of script at all. Uh, for those uh, around 500 years um, in the Aegean region. And so that is the incredible thing that the, the, this palatial administration was so fragile. It was able to, perhaps it was overextended. It's one of the explanations that people have given for the crisis at the, around 1200 BC that the palatial system perhaps just reached too far and became overextended, unable to be controlled, easily uh, disrupted by people who were discontented or people who wanted to challenge the economic status quo. And this is why, uh, as the palaces and their elites disappeared across the Aegean, the palatial settlements disappeared, script was no longer relevant, could not be maintained by a scribal class, and also had nothing to do. The economy had changed, so script had no real function. It, 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 script itself was fragile. It was, it was an elite thing used to record transactions carried out by an elite. Uh, economic transactions. When the social system changes and the settlement system changes and territories change after 1200, it seems that scripts isn't required uh, and isn't able to be used anymore. So an early form of Greek writing showed up in the 8th century. Correct. That was the origins of the Greek alphabet. Okay. Um, the settlements that were were inhabited for sure in the late late bronze age and then then the iron age comes comes next you mentioned that there was this it's like a uh, a, a contraction if you will of of people moving in in inland on, on the island so is there is it known if any settlements were still occupied during this period of time in a substantial way, um, more on the, the like the littoral, the, the literal uh, around the coast, or is it re or is the evidence really showing that the the literal was 
uh, uninhabited, and and the, the the vast majority of people were 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 brought uh, moved themselves inland. Well, if we're talking about Crete, the big center, Knossos, was never uh, ever completely abandoned, and we know that there is a nucleus of continued occupation at Knossos, not in the old palace building, but quite close to it and that that continues through the Iron Age, but it stays relatively small and only starts expanding later in the Iron Age as various different economic changes take place within the island and settlements start to grow in a nucleated form. Uh, so Knossos isn't itself on the coast, but it, it was always closely connected to the coast and there was a harbour settlement as well, where modern day Iraklion is. Uh, and so that's an example of a continuing large settlement which had formerly been palatial and had been a state centre and never loses its population entirely, but contracts considerably. Hanya seems to have been another one of these. It's well documented in the Linear B tablets and it has Linear B script, so it seems to be also acting as a palatial centre in the latest Bronze Age uh, to be an important uh, regional centre at least. And it also has continuing occupation which we can trace archaeologically all the way through from 1200 to 700 BC um, and then it becomes a well-known Greek city-state in later periods so it never seems to have lost a, a nucleus of habitation there but yes the population the movement the evidence for population relocation that we have in Crete is so numerous now so many sites are known and many of them are sizable so it means that there was a major fragmentation of population and it must have been from existing significantly sized sites uh, that broke up and were abandoned so there were a few that continue Festos in the south of Crete is another one but the majority are of, of regional centers regional towns are, are are simply going out of use and their populations are going elsewhere can you speak about what's known about governance in this period of time? And I'm aware that we're talking about a few hundred years. So is anything known about how the the people in this period of time gover governed themselves? And do scholars believe there was there was more than one civilization during this this period of time? Um, what's interesting is. Uh, exactly to find out how people structured these new societies which are emerging at these new sites and that is one of the things i try to do in my research look more deeply and ask more questions about how people did manage because uh, previous scholarship in the in the more recent more distant past tended to see the fall of the mycenaean civilization the late bronze age civilization as the beginning of a period of hiatus in the Aegean, a, a, a regression, if you like, where nothing much happened. People just fell into tribal societies, small groups, with very simple structure. But when we look at the archaeological evidence, and I've written about this in my book, Ancient Crete, I think uh, in some parts of the Aegean, and Crete is one of them, we see considerable complexity in how people are responding to the crisis. Just the relocation itself, the moving to new settlements, requires organization and requires a kind of conflict uh, resolution mechanisms to be in place so that the new fragmenting populations, you know, moving away from the coasts can get along with each other and can uh, establish some kind of new economy and new society. So, for example, what's always struck me is that you see 
a change in the way religious practice is carried out, instead of being located within palatial centres and being under elite control, it seems to be very centralised within each settlement, but in the, within each new settlement, but at a very participatory, in a very participatory way. It's not accompanied by elite types of display. Religion is in the new settlements of Crete at this time, centred in a town shrine with particular types of equipment. The fir for the first time, we see really large-sized uh, human figurines, um, you know, almost a metre tall in some cases, made of pottery and representing a female goddess with upraised arms. To be set on a bench and to be worshipped as uh, idols, accompanied by other certain types of equipment, calafoy, which are probably a type of lamp, snake tubes, which are stands for lamps or vessels, all this kind of equipment uh, placed in a town shrine, which is often just at the edge of a settlement or in a slightly set apart area. It seems to be accessible by all the members of the population or to be very well regulated, but not to be an elite thing. And at the, and at the, at the same time, I'm just investigating this now, but other scholars have investigated too, at different sites, there seems to be another form of social institution emerging based on communal feasting or drinking, perhaps in a defined group or perhaps a more open group. We still don't know enough about it, but it's, a, it's, a, it's located in another type of building, also rather large, uh, but not much larger than their ordinary house, but sometimes a bit set apart by architectural form or by size and with evidence for consumption, particularly of drinking, of, of drinks, alcoholic drinks, most likely, in fine pottery vessels. Um, and this seems to prefigure things we know from the later Greek texts and archaeology, uh, things like the Sisyteion and the Symposion, coming on meals and drinking uh, ceremonies of various types. And so that's fascinating. How early did those new institutions come in after the crisis in political structures around 1200 BC? What, what do you think? Um, what, would there have been, do you, do you consider in this period of time for the island to have been a, a state? Do you believe instead it was um, a variety of independent communities? Is, is, is this area something that really is inconclusive? What, what, what do you think? Well, what we see is so many and so many different sizes of new settlements emerging uh, in all these different locations uh, and, and we, we see clustering going on. The clustering seems to be related to defence rather than to any kind of hierarchy. So we'll see a cluster of sites, uh, sometimes of similar sizes, sitting together and defending themselves against, particularly against approaches from the coast and protecting an inland zone. These sites don't look as if they're in conflict with each other and yet there are multiple, there are multiple sites in clusters and, and then there'll be another cluster not too many kilometers away. So this to us looks like the emergence of individual set, uh, territories, but rather small ones. Uh, you know, we have more than 130 settlements of this type, of this new type now known from Crete. So spread across the islands, uh, it, it doesn't look like a state structure, a single state structure. It's almost impossible that it was, as I've mentioned, each settlement of any, any size, it does seem to have its own social institutions and there is no big centre that we're able to identify which would, which would suggest a, you know, a, a single state. It's very unlikely and also from the later Iron Age uh, uh, archaeological evidence 
and from the later textual evidence of archaic and classical Crete, we know that Crete had multiple city-states. That's what developed out of this early pattern. Eventually, Crete became an island of multiple polities, uh, and too many of them, because they were always fighting with each other. That's what we know from the historical sources. And, and I, I suggest that this, uh, this is rooted in this whole phenomenon of multiple new settlements emerging around 1200, and then having to, uh, to develop small territories for themselves, which were separate from other territories, not necessarily in conflict with each other, but over time, as these individual territories expanded, there would have been friction in the island. And that's how I, I, I see it and how I've presented it in my work. When, when, what century do you, is there consensus, if there is consensus, that there are now uh, a variety of city-states on the island? Is this, is this, is that in this period or is that later? Well, when we start to get um, texts, uh, some of our first texts in Crete are inscriptions on stone, legal inscriptions, identifying polities or polis as they're called in ancient Greek. Uh, and one of the earliest, for example, is from the site of Driros in East Crete, Northeast Crete. Um, so we're able to see from the seventh century definitely that there are individual polities and that they are uh, setting out their legal codes and identifying themselves in various ways. Uh, we still have very few of these sites excavated and very few of them able to provide us with a good long chronology stretching right back into the Iron Age. Uh, and this has only been attempted investigations of, of, of the full chronology of Iron Age settlements from, from the, the period of change at 1200 to the emergence of city-states, often located at the same site, you know, the, the site develops, the, the polity develops. Um, this has only been investigated archaeologically still at a few sites. So uh, it's, it's only at a few sites that enough archaeological investigation has taken place for us to trace the whole history of the Iron Age. Uh, but in, in, in some of these cases, the polity emerges, the city-state emerges out of an Iron Age settlement. And that's fascinating to see that these polities are developing over time at one location. Um, and as, But certainly in response to your question, by the seventh century, we're able to see uh, in written form the evidence for individual self-asserting states in Crete. Okay. Can you speak a bit about the the ar architecture, the, the the buildings themselves that would have been developed in this period of time? What were the the main uh, materials used, and and did you, did did you observe if the if anything evolved in a in a um, in a substantial way or notable way? From the, uh, I almost said in a material way, but I was trying to avoid the pun, but I'll I'll, I'll say it um, from from the previous period. So, what are the, what are the main materials that would have been used to develop buildings in this period of time, and is there any notable uh, evolutions to the materials or the the processes? Well, interestingly, it's it's you can't call it a regression. Uh, it's not a technical regression in any way, as used to. As people perhaps used to think, uh, people have still got the same skills in building with stone, which is the, the main material that they're using, with a mud filling, uh, a mud mortar in between the stones, uh, and in some cases mud brick used uh, to build some features and perhaps some walls. So they haven't lost these skills, but what is missing is any 
trace, certainly in Crete and in most of the Aegean as well, of uh, elite architecture, distinctive or monumental architecture, where special materials were used, special stones as had been used in the earlier palatial period of Crete and on the mainland, special um, ashlar facades as used in the earlier palaces, uh, impressive plaster work, frescoes, and uh, you know that kind of decoration on buildings that is absent now in this period uh, because we don't have these kind of buildings our buildings that we're looking at in the iron age are the small public buildings which i've talked about these emerging institute new institutions which are housed in buildings very similar to ordinary houses and ordinary houses those are the types of buildings we have so there is no ruler there is no person distinguishing themselves by living uh, or, or, or in, an, in a monumental complex or having a retinue of people who also live in this complex or associated craft workers who also live in this complex. That's what has happened in the palaces, but that was not happening in Iron Age Crete. And it, we have individual residences and we have a few very barely distinguished public buildings uh, which are modestly uh, constructed in, in these materials which they, they don't lose the skill of using, but they use in to fit it, the, the new social structure. They use them in appropriate ways, stone and mud stone, uh, to make uh, their buildings. Does any different civilizations show up in a substantial way or a very clear way in the archeological records, in the archeological records in terms of um, a different civilization, not on Crete, showing up in this period of time through, let's say, products, for instance, that were left over on the island. So is there is there another civilization or, or more than one civilization that scholars are pretty confident um, show up in some way in on this island in this period of time that we're speaking about? Well, in the Iron Age, Another common misconception in the past is that the Aegean was cut off from its traditional connections with the East Mediterranean, and we now know that wasn't the case. There continued to be connections with Cyprus, with the Levant, um, and you know Syria. The, these areas, these were, and the end with Egypt, uh, particularly later in the Iron Age and at the beginning of the Archaic period. Crete was did remain connected to the outer world, and um, however. All the objects that we find of this type in the island during the Iron Age are easily attributable to trade and exchange, which had been going on for so long and was now taking different, slightly different routes and taking different forms, but was continuing um, and now included iron objects uh, for the first time. However, uh, that's, that does not mean that these are evidence of any new settlements any new major influx of people or anything like that, any new civilization on Crete in answer to your question. So the, the crisis that we see is not something that's brought in it's, it's by a sweeping incursion of new people. But what we do see around the Aegean probably at the time of crisis and afterwards is new types of movement as people not only move and relocate within their own landscapes, but um, conflict with each other and fight. There must have been quite intense conflict around the time of the destruction of these Mycenaean palaces, and that must have involved movement over distance, people attacking uh, centers, uh, people uh, developing new trade routes, new communication routes um, in opposition to the palatial 
to palatial rules and instructions, and that, that conflict uh, had an element of movement to it. People perhaps uh, trading in ways which hadn't been authorized by the palatial ruler. And this is the kind of roots of the conflict around 1200, I think, uh, more and more unauthorized moving and trading and interacting uh, that was impossible for the palaces in the Aegean ultimately to control and which helped to undermine them. Uh, but that kind of movement is very different from any kind of single directional incursion or invasion which transformed or or, obliter or obliterated the civilization of Crete. So there is no population replacement, but there is major population movements uh, in different ways on land, uh, along the coasts, on, you know, uh, across regions. Uh, but it's, it's, it's not a single, there's no single wave or anything like that, no single population replacement, in my view. Yes, and to be clear about my question, it was, yeah, it was not coming from the angle of asking about population replacement, but was uh, inquiring really about in interactions with different civilizations. So when it comes to objects, what I'm, what I'm trying to get a sense of is, uh, you you'd mentioned earlier, there, there, there was um, some defense and some, some recoiling, but, it, but what I'm also curious is if there's evidence in the records about um, products showing up, objects showing up in some way on the island. It sounds like there, there was, you'd mentioned um, Egypt, the Levant, I think you mentioned Cyprus as well. Um, is there, and I don't know if this is an easy thing to, to answer, you might have an answer for it. Is it, is there evidence that some of these, I'm going to use the term in international uh, states or, or, or areas to, uh, to Crete, is there evidence that they were visiting Crete at all versus, and it could be an and, and, the people within Crete visiting, visiting them and bringing objects back, back to, the, to the island? Or is something like that, that kind of question, is that a very difficult one to, one to tackle based on what's left over in the archaeological record? Well, I think it's very interesting because what we're finding out is more and more about proactivity among populations like the ones in Crete, uh, that they're not simply passive recipients of uh, imported goods, but they're, they, they're selective in what they choose to adopt in, in terms of new styles and materials. And I've just been recently looking at a big assemblage of bronze items from the site of Carfi, which I've excavated. The bronze items I've been looking at were excavated in the 1930s. And it's a very large assemblage of well-preserved bronze items and um, what it confounds by examining it we confound a lot of our expectations we see that the people in the area that i'm looking at which is a highland area of east crete northeast crete the lasithi plain are having a different bronze using a bronze consuming culture from say the people at the continuing settlement of knossos where we also have a large bronze assemblage there are different preferences they, they both both communities take on uh, imports from the East Mediterranean and styles from the East Mediterranean and also from the Central Mediterranean because Italy, South Italy is becoming a major center of bronze working and inspiration in bronze working and trade across the Mediterranean. Uh, we see differences between Knossos and my region, my study region of Lasithi, which tell us that these uh, new communities are quite independent in how they reach out 
to the wider world and how they engage in trade and interaction and the routes they choose whether on sea or on land and that it's not trade isn't all filtered through a particular node or port uh, as it may have been much more as may, as may have been the case much more in the bronze age uh, iron age communities uh, and it seemed to be this fits with the model that i've already suggested of resilience and proactivity and uh, identity forming their own identities quickly in the iron age they're able to interact over the wider theater of the east mediterranean and central mediterranean in independent ways as well it appears so we have to get away from the idea that they are either regressive or passive in their consumption of um exotic goods and and, and ideas i think so do you believe that or or if there's clear evidence that they were still practicing maritime trade to some extent in this period of time in terms of people on the island traveling to other other parts of 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 the region of the aegean or or further than that yes i think there's absolutely no doubt especially again when we look at the metalwork assemblages that's one of the best examples but also pottery um there's constant connection uh, between the styles of mainland Greece, for example, and Crete. There always had been in the late Bronze Age, but in the late Bronze Age, pottery was exported a lot from mainland Greece to the rest of the island Aegean. Uh, but in the Iron Age, Crete produces most of its own pottery in, in terms of fine wares, but they're still in touch with what's going on in, in styles in uh, the mainland, and they're able to um, follow trends and, and, and put their own stamp on them as well. And so in some way, pottery is moving, uh, people are, or potters are moving and traveling and consuming uh, and being able to get ideas about style. And the same is happening in metalwork. Uh, they're smiths, they haven't regressed, they're able to do bronze working just as they had done before. They're able to recycle bronze, but they're probably still also able to get some supplies of bronze and tin. And they're able to make objects uh, in, in forms which are innovative, but also which are traditional. They, they keep on a lot of traditional bronze forms from the East Mediterranean uh, in, in long, long-standing traditions. They keep making them in Crete. At the same time, they're innovating regionally in different kinds of bronze work, particularly knives, for example, which become an important personal item, both in uh, iron and bronze in, uh, in this period, uh, an important way of showing your identity and your status in which type of knife you chose to consume in its form also, uh, dress pins uh, are important at this time in telling us about uh, how people are consuming uh, fashions from the wider Mediterranean. We get a lot of Italianizing dress pins coming into Crete and other parts of the Aegean, but they're not all imported by any means. In fact, probably very few of them are, and they're mostly uh, a result of people traveling and, and uh, smiths traveling particularly and uh, getting examples of, uh, of items produced in other areas and copying them and making them fashionable. You had mentioned earlier re religion and, and worship. Can you expand on what's known about the religious orientation of people on the island during this period of time? Well, as I mentioned earlier, you have a female goddess as absolutely dominant in the iconography. You have these uh, very large ceramic uh, hollow statues 
figurines being placed in the shrines. And so that does seem to be uh, a female goddess. We have Potnia, a goddess repeatedly referred to uh, in the Linear B documents, which is a female deity. It seems to be extremely important um, in the latest Bronze Age. At the same time, we've got, we, we probably have some other deities or concepts of deities as well, um, but we're, we're just not, we're, we're not seeing them. We're not seeing representations of them. The bull, the importance of the bull and the bull's head or the cow head uh, with horns, we see elements of that continuing into uh, Iron Age Crete and it was important in Bronze Age Crete that may be linked to some kind of male deity or male uh, religious concept. Um, but we, we don't have more information about that really in the Iron Age, but we, we, we have got indications that the, the Bucranium, the head, the, the bull's head is still an important piece of iconography and the bull itself is because we have shrines at places like Ayatriagan, South Crete, which is an open air shrine of the Iron Age. We've got a huge mass of animal figurines, all bull form and all painted and large hollow animal figurines, which must signify something about a particular cults. Uh, of a particular deity, which may well be male. And then later on, uh, towards the end of the Iron Age and the beginning of the Archaic period, we start to have plaques deposited with female, highly Egyptianizing figures of uh, deities on them. And uh, there are suggestions that these are different parts of the early Greek pantheon. Some early Archaic shrines have been possibly identified with deities such as Athena. Uh, and, and we may be starting to see the emergence of named uh, different female deities um, within the known Greek pantheon at this time around the archaic period, but um, it, it, that's that's what we we know. We have a female goddess as very dominant uh, in the early part of the Iron Age, which may become more split and complex as we go through the period. Okay, I know we're going back twenty-five to three thousand or so years, thirty-two hundred or so years back. Is it known at all what the most common food that would have been consumed on the island in this period of time would have been? And, and then also be beverages, what the most common beverages aside from water would, would have been? I see. Well, you're not going to be surprised at this <laughs> when I tell you that olive oil is probably in the number one spot. I mean, they, they are still consuming olives and olive oil, which we know from the archaeobotanical remains excavations from this period. Uh, they have a wide range of meat, so they're, they're, it's a mixed farming base. We've got cattle being used for meat. Even dogs are consumed at my site that I excavate, and there have been cases in other sites as well. Um, not as a major food species, but they do seem to be consumed as meat sometimes, um, and sheep and goats and pig. Um, even at these remarkable new sites, they seem to insist on having a diverse range of animals exploited. They have game, uh, deer, different types, species of deer, hare, and these kinds of things, small game, are used. Um, the most popular food is difficult, but obviously wheat continues to be used, and grape is also in a high position, uh, particularly for making wine, and we, we have uh, you know plenty of evidence for grape being, being used at this time and through this period. So they don't change the main crops of the late Bronze Age or the main animal species they exploit, but they do use a sort of more mixed base economy at these new sites in Crete. 
because there isn't that specialization driven by the palatial center, for example, in herding and wool production, there's not that intense pressure to do one particular thing and to be invest and to invest in one particular thing. So you get more of a survival type uh, mixed space of farming, but not in any way, uh, again, regressive or desperate or focused on just their subsistence. People are doing things like uh, raising cattle at really quite high altitude sites, which they don't really need to do, but they're doing it presumably because they have cattle, they continue to keep cattle, they continue to see their value as draft animals and also as meat animals, and so they, they use them, they don't stop using them. In closing, Cyril, is there, is there any closing point that you want to make sure gets in the episode that we haven't covered yet about the Crete during the Iron Age, or is there, alternatively, is there something we did chat about that you want to make sure is emphasized before we wrap up the chat today? Well, I really just wanted to draw attention to the fact that we're excavating at the moment, or we're, we were supposed to this year, we did a preparatory season, and we have a team at the University of Manchester and myself excavating at Carfi again. I excavated it in 2008, and it was previously excavated in the 1930s, it's, it's the highest altitude site of these sites that I've just been talking about in Crete. It's 1,100 meters above sea level, and it's on top of a beautiful mountain, uh, and it's really spectacular, and it's large. It's a large site, started its life at 1200 BC, and its life was over at 1000 BC, so it's quite short-lived, but it is a full settlement, and it has previously been called a city, and it has a shrine, and it has a dining building, we think, and it's really opening up uh, our knowledge of this period. So I'm very happy to be reinvestigating it. It's much bigger than was originally thought by the original excavator, and we're able to um, find out a lot more using modern techniques of excavation. So research is going on right now is what I'd like to stress, not just my own, but many other people are still interested in this period and revisiting some of the sites that we've known about for a while and using the best quality research techniques to get the most out of them. And because they're on hilltops, many of them, it's quite hard to do. It's very arduous work, but it's really worth doing to reveal this period that used to be called the Dark Age, but is now definitely not. Uh, it really has been illuminated by archaeological finds in the last 30 or 40 years. And so we're still working on it. But it's worth pointing out that it is ongoing research. So the project you're involved in that you described there, does the project have a website set up? Yet for it? It does. Okay. Yeah. It's called, yeah. Please. Do you want me to say that? Please. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. It's called Carfi Revisited Excavation Project with hyphens between all those words, and it's at webnodes.com. Okay. It was a pleasure speaking with you today, Cyril. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. So, what I'm going to do, everybody, is provide a link to the project that Dr. Wallace just described there in the show notes. I'll also provide links to both the books that I mentioned at the start of the episode that Dr. Wallace authored, Ancient Crete and Travelers in Time. So I'll provide all these links in the show notes on the IthacaBound.com's associated subpage to this episode. Sarah and everybody listening, as always, wishing you a marvelous journey. Bye for now. Hey again, if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast and I wish you a bountiful rest of your day. Bye for now.